Good morning. Um, it is so, so, so good to be back. Um, it's good we're social distancing because you can't see the tears in my eyes right now. Um, how happy it is and just so good to worship with you all this morning. Um, I just bring you greetings from the believers in the Middle East that I work with. They recorded a video um, for me to show you all, but due to safety, I'm not going to show it up on the big screen. So if you want to see it, um, have it on my phone. Um, but they send their greetings and just their thanks for the prayers that you guys offer up for them. Um, it's great. So I'm um, just going to share a little bit of what I do there. Um, in the Middle East, I work in a medical clinic that is um, a charity medical clinic, we call it. We're all believers there. And it's just a little makeshift clinic. It's not an actual clinic, but we set up bed sheets as room dividers. And we do that two to three times a week in the clinic. And we're able to share stories there, which a lot of times come from the Bible. And so through that way, we're able to offer the truth. And sometimes we even get to pray for patients. Um, another day a week, I work in a hospital secular government hospital, um, and that's huge that I get to work there because that just doesn't really happen um, for a foreigner to get to work in a government hospital there, uh, but I have to be a little more careful with what I share. And then my favorite days are when I get to go do medical visits in homes because then I'm really getting in to be with the people in their homes and you know, we get to drink lots and lots of tea together, and we talk about their medical issues, of course, but people are hurting, and so I get to really speak into their hurt, and I get to speak into what's going on in their life, their struggles. Um, many of them are refugees from other countries, or some of them are just poor. Um, COVID has hit the Middle East just like it has here. Um, and maybe even more so in that there's a lot of people without jobs um, who are, you know, they literally have not one piece of food in their house left. Um, so it's good to get to speak into their lives. Another thing I do is I am currently meeting with three women one-on-one. Um, -on, -one. One of them was a patient of mine. Um, so these three women, uh, two of them are just brand new believers, and they are just learning the basics of Christianity, and we're walking through uh, just discipleship, and that's so beautiful to see. They're each the only ones in their families that are believers. And I meet with another woman who is very curious about scripture, and she uh, is very open so I think, you know, as we meet, hopefully we'll be able to, um, yeah, have her arrive to faith. Um, all three of them have the same first letter of their name. So I call them my three N's because um, they all share that. So you can be lifting up the three N's. Um, and then I also meet with a group of believers that they all, you know, didn't grow up as in Christianity. So we have started to meet together, and I 
it is looking like the start of maybe a house church, which is extremely exciting um, to, I mean, this could be a church plant, um, looks like in the future, and it's, yeah, it's what it's all about. Um, it's one of our big goals there is to plant churches. Of those people that meet with me, they're experiencing incredible persecution. Some of you have read my newsletters, and one of the main kind of leaders in that group, he just got stoned by his own family members. Uh, he lived, but just walking with these new believers through just incredible, incredible persecution, where I just, I mean, I look at them and say, the world is not worthy of these people. Um, but through that, watching this church be developed and these people really become strong in their faith and encouraged in their faith through persecution, it's, it's beautiful to witness firsthand. So that's a little bit of what I do there. I um, just want to say I so appreciate Berean and being my sending fellowship, my sending church. Uh, it's great to know that there's a whole body of believers here in Minnesota that are lifting me up. So I'll be here for until um, January 4th is the tentative date that hopefully I can fly back. Uh, we'll see. And so part of my purpose in being here is just to reconnect with people, to um, have coffee if you want, to just connect with um, Berean again. I'll be here most Sundays, so I'll be seeing you again. Can't get rid of me. Um, but uh, so that's part of my goal here. Um, ways you can be involved. Like, I still need prayer while I'm here, um, and as well as when I'm overseas. So praying for me. Um, I'm still in need of financial donors. So if you um, that's something you're interested in, talk to me. But really, I just look forward to um, being with Berean during my time here. And I, uh, it's good to be back. So thank you very much. Thank you, worship team. Just the combination of hearing the testimony about our brothers and sisters and that song, it just strikes me. Are there ever moments where the gospel overwhelms you? You just think, my God, you came and you dwelt and you lived this life and you paid the price for me that I might be yours. And some of our brothers are saying, and that's worth being stoned for. That's worth being thrown out of my family for. That's worth losing it all. And I'm not looking to compare. You know, probably the worst that happens to us is we get called bigots or narrow-minded or whatever happens, you know. But he is our living hope. And I hope that captures your heart every day.
You know, if this is, hasn't happened to you somewhere along the way, it's going to happen to you. You're going to experience a project, a journey, an endeavor, a trial, a test. Where if the Lord God of the universe does not show up, if he decides to sleep in, he never does. If he decides to take the day off, and he doesn't, but you're in deep kimchi if he doesn't show up. Things are not going to turn out well. Things are going to fall apart and there's probably no recovery. You know, it, it's probably true every day more than we know it or not. He is holding us together. And there are days when we are particularly cognizant of it, aren't there? There are moments like we're just going, Lord, you got to show up. You have to meet us. This is, this is not going to turn out unless you meet us. And for those of us who had the opportunity to go like to Haiti, we've experienced that. We've experienced this like, Lord, our plans are out the door. You have to meet us. Your gracious hand has to help us make it through. And thus is the case as we look at God's word today in the book of Ezra. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. It's right after Second Chronicles if you haven't been there for a while. And uh, we're going to be in chapters 7 and 8. But thus far, we have seen the gracious hand of God on his people. He changes the heart of the new king, Cyrus, to not only release the people of Jerusalem to return and rebuild the temple, but he gets behind it. He's going to help fund it. And he returns the treasures, the articles that were taken from, from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. Returning both the articles to the temple and the people to the land. Because they're both holy to the Lord. And as we saw, the foundations were built because the temple was completely wiped out. And there were two reactions. The young people who had never seen the temple were excited about what God would do. And the older generation who have the recollection of what the old temple used to look like, look like responded with a little bit of sorrow because of what they had lost. But when the people of the land offered to help them out, a group called the Samaritans who, yeah, they worshipped the Lord, but they also worshipped other gods, they were rebuffed. And they didn't take very kindly to that. And so they hired counselors and lawyers to create political opposition and ultimately when uh, Cyrus's son Cambyses becomes the king the temple construction stops for 10 years but then God brings a new king Darius and God prompts his people to start construction again through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and the people start to build there's a confrontation with the Gentile governor and a, a request goes out says who authorized this and ultimately is shown that the people of God are vindicated 
and supported by the new King Darius. And he's excited about rebuilding this temple. So the temple gets rebuilt, worship is restored, and they keep the Passover. So that's where we are in the story. But now 58 years have passed since then as we get to chapter 7. Two kings have been in the throne, Xerxes and now Artaxerxes. And we're going to meet a new generation. A new generation of exiles who are ready to return to serve the Lord at the temple and to be his holy people. But in order to do so, they're going to need to see the gracious hand of God at work in their efforts. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word and His story about His faithfulness. So Lord God, we are so grateful for how you've met your people then and you're meeting us now. And we ask you to open our eyes to your Word. We ask you also to help us to see you for who you really are. The living God, again, who sent his son for us, who is faithful and always gracious. Help us to see that today and help us to walk in faith and respond to you rightly. If that's repentance, help us to repent. If that's moving forward in faith, help us to move forward. If that is just rejoicing in who you are, indeed, Lord, we want to rejoice in who you are. So we're grateful for your word for your active um, role in our lives, because you are our life. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So, here we are in chapter 7. And we finally get to meet Ezra, the guy for whom this book is named. Now, we're going to cover two chapters today, so I'm going to be summarizing quite a bit, especially in chapter 1. But chapter 7 here is really an introduction to who Ezra is, his person, and his mission. So in verse 1, we find out that he lives, he works, he exists during the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And this is Artaxerxes' seventh year. Again, 81 years after Cyrus made his great proclamation that the people of God could return. This is 458 B.C. And we find out that Ezra has a lineage. A lineage as you go through 17 generations from verses 1 through 5. He is a direct descendant of Aaron, the first high priest. Now Aaron was not a perfect man. As we see in Exodus, he, he was the guy who said, Oh, Moses is taking too long. Give me your gold will make a God here. So he had feet of clay. But he was God's first high priest. And it's pretty heavy stuff to think, you know what, I'm a direct descendant of Aaron, of the high priest of the living God. How did Ezra view himself and his heritage? More specifically, how do you view yourself and your earthly heritage? can have a negative effect as you look at the brokenness and the hurt in your own family and you may be thinking man I am just destined to repeat that same old pattern 
On the other side, we can have an unhealthy balance of thinking too highly of ourselves. As we look back on godly parents or godly grandparents and think, well, you know, God's got us. We're his favorites. First of all, God has no grandchildren. He deals with every generation personally. And he's more concerned about your heart than he is about your heritage. That's pretty important, especially in the gospel. And do you know him? Even more importantly, do you know his son? Well, more about Ezra. In chapter 6, we find out that he is well-versed in the law of Moses, which was given by the living God. In fact, he was a guy who said, hey, I'm all about living this out. We're going to see this in a moment here. Um, also in chapter 6, I mean verse 6, we find out that he has royal connections. It says that as he went to the king, the king granted him everything he asked for. And we'll find out about that here in a moment. But hey, this is the king of kings, as he calls himself, Artaxerxes, who has huge influence all the way almost to Greece, all the way across, all the way to India. So it's a huge empire that he's in charge of. And Ezra has connections with him. But more importantly, he has heavenly connections. Look at verse 6. For the hand of the Lord God was on him. And we're going to see that phrase repeated over and over again, or a variation thereof. The hand of the Lord was on him. You see, Ezra had responded to God's call on his life. And he wanted to be God's man. And he's ready to leave this life of of comfort that he's experiencing. He He has access to the king. I'm thinking Ezra was living a pretty good life. But here's the thing. They are the people of God, and they're in exile. They are in exile. 81 years ago, the king of the Persian Empire said, you can go back. Why are these people still here? And that's what Ezra is asking himself. He says, I am willing to leave the luxury and the good life of what I'm living here in Persia to return to the place of worship, to return to the place where I'm called to be a priest and where I'm called to teach God's people about the law. I want to be God's holy man. And so in verses 7 through 9, he's going to take the second group of exiles, of priests, of Levites, of singers, of gatekeepers, temple servants, to go back to Jerusalem to serve the living God at the temple. Much like what we saw in the big genealogies in uh, Ezra chapter 2. And I promise I won't read that again. They're going to leave the evil empire, if you will, because they've been conformed to this world. And they're getting too comfortable. They're in exile. And in Deuteronomy 4, 29, God says, if you will find me and seek me, when you seek me with your whole heart, and I'll return you to the land. And so they want to walk toward this promise rather than to be conformed to the comfortable world around them. So in verse 9, it's almost kind of anticlimactic because the author gives his hand away too early. 
He doesn't let the, he doesn't let the, the pressure build up. He says, he began his journey from Babylon on the first day of the month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of our God was on him. There's that phrase again. But it's a four-month journey from the Babylon province all the way to Jerusalem. But Ezra's personal mission, verse 10, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to the teaching, its decrees, and its laws in Israel. Again, Ezra is all about the law of the Lord. He's all about the scripture. He's about studying it, he's about living it, and he's about teaching it. Honestly, that was more the primary reason he was returning. He's a priest, he can minister in the temple, but he wants to teach the people. He wants to teach the people to live out the the law of the Lord, to live out the scriptures. I don't want this exile thing happen to us ever again. That's why I'm going back, is, is his mission. And God seemed to be, be behind it. Again, he has access to the king, and he's given this letter. This letter that opens up all sorts of doors for him. And just FYI, this is verses uh, 12 through 26. It's all in Aramaic in, in, our, in our Hebrew Bible which is a Semitic language, but it's, it's not the exact same because this is the official language of the Persian Empire and its court. But it tells, <clears throat> verses 13 and 14, that the king and his, his advisors had sent him, verses 15 through 20, that silver and gold are given by the king and his advisors, also freewill offerings from God's people in the area to buy animals uh, for Ezra to sacrifice as he sees fit, and articles, now listen to this, of gold and silver are made there to be installed in the temple for worship, to be delivered to the temple. And then he's given carte blanche in verses 21 through 23. Whatever he needed, he, whatever he said, you know, we need this at the temple. It could be taken from the royal treasury in trans-Euphrates, three and three-quarter tons of silver, 600 bushels of wheat, 600 gallons of wine, 600 gallons of olive oil, Salt without measure. And then this is the reason. Second half of verse 23. Why, talking about God, should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and his sons? Now, Ezra's been talking to the king about who God is. And I don't know that Artaxerxes was actually a follower of Yahweh, of the Lord. But he was covering his bases, right? He was covering his theological bases, man. If that God really is as powerful and as magnificent as, as Ezra says, maybe I better do something to contribute to his efforts. Verse 24, taxes couldn't be levied on anyone who worked in the temple. Verses 25 through 26. And Ezra is appointed as a judge uh, to appoint teachers, to teach the Old Testament law, to keep the Old Testament law. And the people, if they didn't, could be punished by death banishment, loss of property, or imprisonment. And this is Ezra's response at the end of the chapter. Verses 27 um, through 28. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because... 
the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage and gathered the leaders from Israel to go up with me. So chapter 7, that's the cliff notes. Any of you remember cliff notes growing up? I guess it's now spark notes if you, uh, you're in school right now to kind of get the, the short version. It's the feel-good, happily-ever-after summary of the story. And maybe as, as we're here, you kind of go, okay, I really can't relate. Because I live in the real world. I have challenges. I have struggles. Ezra seems to live a charmed life. He's got connections to the king. God seems to be working out everything beforehand. My life isn't like that. Uh, you know, things don't just fall into place like that. There are challenges. And I want to tell you, Ezra has his own struggles and challenges. Things don't just fall into place. In fact, it's just the beginning of the challenges that come to Ezra. So if chapter 7 is the fairy tale shortened version of Happily Ever After, chapter 8 is the real life. The real challenges, the real struggles, the real life version of how it all happened. As we've seen, Ezra is looking to gather our group to return, to augment the service of the temple. As we start chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, you get a list of the heads of the priestly families. And then in verse 15, Ezra tells everybody who's going to return, say, meet me at the Ahava Canal. We're all going to gather together there. We're going to kind of take a, a raising of hands, make sure, see who's everybody's here, and then we're going to go. But there's a problem when they get there. They discovered something. And this call to return, to come and serve the Lord at His temple, there is a lack of Levites. A lack of Levites. And you go, okay. And that concerns me because... What's the problem there? Verse 15. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found there were no Levites there. The Levites were an integral part of helping the priests running and maintaining the ministry of the temple. They helped with sacrifices. They provided security. They took care of the furnishings of the temple. And they also taught the law to the people. And the Levites had a special role in the people of God and a special role before God himself. In fact, God said, you Levites, you're my heritage. Because all the firstborn are, are, are sacred and holy to me. You, I'm putting you in place of the firstborn. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 3 verses 11 through 13. You Levites, you are holy to me. You are mine. And now a group is returning back from exile to serve the Lord, and nobody's there. Nobody is there save for the priests. There are no Levites. Why? Scripture doesn't say. Maybe some of the Levites said, you know, hey, they're Levites there already. They, they don't need me. It's all good. It's being covered. Or maybe where someone's going, look, it's, this is a dangerous journey. Four months out there in the desert. It's uncertain, and I don't even know what's at the other end of this thing. 
Life is pretty good here in the Persian Empire, in the old Babylonian Empire. I'm going to stay put. But this was not God, what God had called them to. And again, they were just conforming to the world around them. The Lord had a bigger life for them, ministering to him and his people. And Ezra, to his credit, the man of God, he does not let the Levites sink into the sludge of their own comfort. He sends a delegation to the Levites in a town called Casaphia, and he talks, he sends uh, representatives to a, a leader named Edo and calls them to return. And if you pick up the second half of verse 17, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. And then he says, because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 in all. And Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah, with the descendants of Merari and his brothers and nephews, 20 in all. And they also brought 220 temple servants, a body that David and the officials established to assist the Levites, all registered by name. So they respond. Someone comes and says, no, really. We're going back to serve the Lord. We're going back to our heritage as God's people. Don't stay here. Don't stay here and just conform to the world around you. God has something greater for you. Let me ask you this question. When the call goes out to serve somehow, whether it's here at Berean or someplace else, do you think, well, the Lord really doesn't need me. Someone else can, can fill that role. I want to say this. The body of Christ is always lesser when people withhold themselves from serving. Do we hold back sometimes because we've, we've sunk into the sludge of our own comfort? I want to do what I want to do on a Saturday. And I, I really don't want to make time to paint a building or to pull off siding or to give food away or whatever it is. Have we sunk into our own comfort? Have we gotten comfortable with the world around us? Have we forgotten that we are, if you're in Christ, holy to the Lord? We're supposed to be living for Him and His kingdom. And then on the other end, when we see our brothers and sisters sinking into that, do we care enough to confront? To say, hey, God has given you gifts. God has given you abilities, and when you hold back, it we're lesser of a body because of that. And God has something so much more. So much more than living the American dream. Our biggest problem sometimes when the internet goes out. God's got something more for you to live for than just the comfort of this world. So they have the personnel now. They've got the Levites. They've got the temple workers. They've got the gatekeepers. They're ready to return. But Ezra realized it's going to take something more than just having the personnel. And if you look at verse 
21. He says, There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. And then it says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. And it's always good to look to the Lord, whatever you're doing. Proverbs uh, 16.3 says, Commit your way to the Lord and He will make your way prosper. But the real issue is a lack of protection. (laughs) At least from an earthly perspective. Again, Ezra had been witnessing to the king about who his God was. What God had done to deliver his people in the past. And how he was faithful in the future. Especially to those who look to him. The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. And so to ask for an armed guard, a a military escort, that seems to be selling God short in his ability to protect and provide. So the dangers were real. Again, they're making a four-month journey across this area. There are bandits and marauders, rebel warlords, and they could be attacked at any moment. And there was no highway patrol. There was probably not a string of fortresses they could go from one place to another. They were out on the open road. The dangers were very real. But faith in God, in His provision, and His protection also is about to become very real. And I know this is the church and Sunday school answer. But how many of you know that is the safest place to be? Under the protection of the living God. That is the safest place to be. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it, and they are saved. You can be in the most dangerous nation or the most dangerous neighborhood. But if God has called you to be there and you are following Him, He has got you. It's more dangerous for you to get in your car and drive to Quick Trick for a Coke and come back than to be in that place to know that God, the gracious hand of God, is on you and protecting you. Again, so He says, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this and He answered our prayer in verse 23. And I don't know how God answered the prayer. I have no idea. But somehow they had a sense of God saying, I've got your back. I've got you. I'm holding you. I'm protecting you. And the reality that the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to them was now going to take root as they embarked on this journey. If God doesn't show up, they're in deep kimchi, right? Even worse, though, was a lack of a low profile. A lack of a low profile. If you read verses 24 through 30, the group that was returning was probably about 3,000 people. That's children, wives, and, and the workers. And so a greater reason for security is revealed here. Verse 24. 
Then I set apart 12 leading priests together with Sherebiah and Hashabiah. We met them earlier. These are Levites. And 10 of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold, the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver. That's 25 tons of silver, by the way. Silver articles weighing 100 talents. That's 3.75 tons of silver, by the way. 100 talents of gold. That's 3.75 tons of gold. 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 derricks. That's 19 pounds of gold. And two fine articles of polished bronze and as precious as gold. I have no idea. No idea what that costs. But here's what I'm trying to express. Here's the clear picture. There are 32 and a half tons of treasure here to be transported, gold and silver, divided among 24 priestly and Levitical leaders. And that equates to 1.35 tons per liter. You're not tucking that treasure behind your back or putting it in your coat or up in your turban. This stuff has to be transported by a wagon or a cart or many wagons and carts. Two or more. And it's going to be obvious that to people watching you, you're transporting something. It may be covered, but you got something in there and you're not going to get away quickly. Because this is 1.35 tons per liter. And by the way, the cash value, I just calculated that on Friday, it's more than $252 million on today's market. That's a lot of cheddar. It's going to take some men of integrity to transport that, isn't it? Some men of integrity. And he says in verse 28, He's talking to these leaders who he's given the, the, the treasure. I said to them, you, as well as the articles that are consecrated to the Lord, the silver and the gold are freewill offerings to the Lord. <clears throat> Let me read that again. You, as well as these articles, are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and the gold are freewill offering to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chamber of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Before leading, before leading priests and Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. Again, there's certainly a need for protection from without, but there's a greater need for protection from within. 32 and a half tons of gold and silver. It's easy for a few coins to go missing, aren't there? Easy for a few drachmas to just disappear. But Ezra doesn't threaten them as he charged them. He doesn't ask for a security deposit. No, he says, you are consecrated. You are holy to the Lord. You are set apart for this mission. 
just as much as this treasure is, even more so, because you are God's chosen people. You are His set-aside Levites and priests. And you are His image-bearers. And this is a greater honor and a greater responsibility and a greater privilege than gaining a few drachmas more, if you will. And that begs the question to us, doesn't it? Who are us when we're entrusted with treasures? Or we're entrusted with responsibility? Who are we when nobody is looking? You know, one of the privileges and one of the challenges now is so many of us work from home now, don't we? Do we put in an honest day's labor for an honest day's work? Or are we cutting corners? God is calling for integrity in His people. If you are in Christ, you are holy. You are set apart. You are part of a royal priesthood, in fact, is what He says. And it matters how you conduct yourself in honesty, in integrity. If not, just because the Lord is watching, and He is watching, He sees it all. But because you are His, you are holy. And it matters how you reflect Him to the world around Him. So that's kind of where all the big drama is here in this passage. The trip begins in verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of, of our God was on us and protected us from, the, from enemies and bandits along the way. And so we were arrived, arrived at Jerusalem and we rested three days. They made it. They made, in fact, it was kind of uneventful, it seems like. Maybe drudgery and, and weary and hot, but this four-month journey, God protected them. God had their back. And by the way, I guess it takes three days to recover from a, a four-month journey across the desert. Maybe you should try that the next time you come home from your vacation. But it says on the, in verse 33, On the fourth day in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and the gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priests. Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, was with him, and so were the Levites, Josabad, and son of Jeshua, and Odiah, the son of Benui. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at the time. So these men took seriously their charge that they were holy to the Lord, and they lived it out with integrity. What a great testimony. And then in verse 35 it says, Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all of Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-six, seventy-seven male lambs, and as a, son, as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord as they also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and the governors of trans-Euphrates who, who then gave assistance to the people and the house of God. So yeah, they made it back. 
They're honoring the king's request by making sacrifices. But here's what I want you to, to realize. Every one of these priests, Levites, temple servants, this is the first time they ever worshipped at the temple. Remember, they grew up in Babylon. They just heard about this. And now they had been returned. And what did they offer up? Twelve bulls for every tribe of Israel. It's a sense of God is restoring and bringing back to completion what had been dispersed. And they offer up 12 goats as a sin offering for every tribe of Israel that we all might be atoned for. A sense that God is bringing back to completion what had been dispersed. But even more so, this journey had taught them that the living God was who their forefathers said He was. He was the one who could protect them, and His gracious hand was upon them. And here we are, more than 2,500 years later, under a new covenant, a better covenant. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But I can guarantee you somewhere in your life there's going to be a moment, there's going to be a task, there's going to be a challenge, there's going to be an endeavor before you. You know God's calling you into it, but you know that unless He shows up, you're in deep kimchi. And you're going to have to decide whether He is who He says He is or He's not. And you're going to have to decide whether it is His gracious hand that can protect you and take care of you or not. But the gracious hand of God will be upon you. But let me end with this. Remember Ezra. He's returning to teach the law. To teach the people the law. And you know what we're going to get in the next week, the next chapter? And we're going to find out the people of God don't do so well with keeping the law. They don't do so well because it's, it's a heart problem. And while Ezra comes back to teach it, and I will tell you, you know, in, in Israel... The, the thought of keeping the law becomes a much more high, heightened value as, as we head into the time of Jesus. But again, the problem is we as a people cannot keep God's perfect law. They'll spend 450 years wrestling with that. The problem is not the law. The problem is the heart. Our hearts. And we need God's gracious provision. God's gracious care. And it doesn't come in pulling up your, belting up your buckle or pulling up your bootstraps saying, I'll do better. It comes in the gracious provision 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. The one who becomes the perfect sacrifice to reconcile us between a holy God and sinful men and women. That is God's gracious provision. And those of us who know him, he has given us a mission, much like Ezra, to proclaim his word, but ultimately to proclaim gospel, to proclaim good news. That what you cannot do, God has done himself in sending his son. That's the mission he's given us. His New Testament holy saints. That what is impossible with man has been made possible with the living God. And we have the privilege to declare that hope, that graciousness to the nations, to our neighbors, to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And that's where I leave you today with the gracious God who has his hand upon us. So let me pray and then I'll invite the worship team to close us here. Lord, we are, gracious, we are so grateful for this, this record of your faithfulness, of your gracious hand being upon your people. And indeed, we want to walk in the confidence of, of that truth of who you are. But even more so, more specifically, would you make us faithful with the mission you've given us to proclaim that graciousness in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we head into this new week, make us mindful of what we heard. Prompt us with your Holy Spirit to be your holy people, to live unto you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.